This sermon is just a part of our whole service here at City Temple. And if you'd like more information about how you can join us either online via Zoom or here in person, please contact us at info at city-temple.com. Today, we are joyful and honored that Kate Darnold will bring a message entitled Great Expectations. I guess that's me. Am I on? Okay. Um, you're probably expecting to hear Rod today. So he is very confident and very dynamic in the way that he speaks. Um, but you got me. So you might have to kind of adjust your expectations a little bit. But since I'm talking about expectations today, it'll just be good practice for you. Um, I know Rod pretty much just did the opening prayer, but I'm going to do it anyway so I can settle my own nerves if nothing else. So um, let's pray. Daddy God, I just thank you for this opportunity to um, try to convey your heart um, to the people here today and the people online, and I um, ask for your grace to be able to do so well. Um, I pray that um, everything that is not of you um, would just not even leave my lips, um, but anything that is, God, would just go deep in our hearts. Um, so I pray that your grace and your grace would just be upon me to be able to communicate what I believe you put on my heart in a way that it would be able to be understood and well-received. And I just thank you um, for this time and for these people and for this church in the city of London. In Jesus' name. All right, so expectations are a funny thing. We set them unconsciously, and yet they can have a major impact on how we feel about a particular outcome. Here's a scenario for you. We all know Rod's a fairly generous person, so just imagine he came up to you after church service one day and he just said, oh, you've been really pursuing the Lord lately. I've been really proud of you. I see so much fruit in your life, and I really just want to bless you. And he reaches into his pocket and he pull, or to pull out like a check or a banknote, draft, whatever you call them here, but it's not there. And he's like, oh, no, I forgot it at home. I'll have to bring it next week. So you go about your week, and you have this expectation of being able to receive a gift from Pastor Rod. And you're like, oh, I need a few things, but it would be, so it would be really great if, you know, like, it was 100 pounds, right? And we always try to, like, not get our hopes up, not set expectations, but it's really hard not to actually do that. So you're like, oh, 100 pounds would be great. And so he comes the next week, and he pulls out the, the check, and he hands it to you, and it's 1,000 pounds. You'd be ecstatic, right? Completely over and above your expectations. What about the opposite scenario? He comes to you and he's like, oh, pulling out and, you know, same thing. But he's saying like, oh, I know you need like a new phone and I know you were telling me about that smartwatch that you really want and I really want to bless you and I know these are some things that you really want. And so you're going about your week and you're like, oh, well, you know, a new smartwatch, a new phone, that's like a thousand pounds. Like, oh, I can't really hope for that. I can't really believe for that. That would be amazing, right? And you get there the next Sunday and he pulls out the gift and he hands it over and it's a hundred pounds like it's still an unearned blessing and yet part of your heart would be like oh i was hoping for more so even though it was unconsciously shaped your expectations can actually determine how you feel about something even something as simple as a blessing so what does this have to do with sunday morning why am i talking about it today for me i've always wondered how 
we could go, or the crowds um, in Jesus' time could go from what we call the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as Jesus is riding in on the donkey, shouting um, declarations of praise, declaring him the Messiah, to crucifying him a week later, calling for his blood when he's standing before Pilate. And it probably was a lot of the same people. So how do you switch from praise to crying out for the death of someone in less than a week? It's a pretty strong um, swing in, in heart attitude. You might argue maybe the Pharisees had a, enough influence to do that, but I honestly don't think they do or did. Um, Luke actually records the Pharisees asking Jesus to rebuke the crowds for declaring him the Messiah on that day when he was riding into Jerusalem. And Jesus just replied, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. So they were not happy about what was happening, and yet they couldn't turn the tide of the crowd's praise. They didn't have enough influence to impact that day. Rod might suggest that the crowds were just fickle, but that to me, he has other suggestions too, but that was one of his options. Um, that to me doesn't really explain how you can go to, from one extreme to the other in such a small period of time. So I would suggest um, that the crowds had such a strong expectation of what the Messiah should look like that they missed what God was actually doing among them. I personally have had a lot of dashed expectations in my own life, um, and I have experienced the frustration and the anger and sometimes even the bitterness that can result. So I can honestly see um, that actually accounting for that big swing in from praise to crucify him. And there were actually a lot of messianic um, prophecies in the scriptures that they could have and should have been aware of at that time. But the focus would have been on the Davidic prophecy, which is Isaiah 9, um, verse 7, but I'm going to start in verse 6. And I think I have a slide. Awesome. For us, a child shall be born, to us a son shall be given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There shall be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. He shall rule on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time forward and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So in verse 6, you actually see a pretty strong clue that it's not going to look like what Israel is expecting. They call him mighty God. Yet in verse 7, you see their expectations. It's all about David, and everybody in Israel would have known David's story even at that time, even if they weren't familiar with some of the other scriptures. David had an earthly throne and an earthly kingdom, and it is in his lifetime he gave Israel peace through war. He beat back the enemies and the oppressors of Israel to free them. Um, he set up a, or a government, government of justice that his people prospered under. And that is what Israel was looking for at the time. But there were other prophecies. The first one I'll touch on is Daniel 22, 44. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. 
and it shall stand forever. So you might note it says a kingdom, not the kingdom, not Israel. It doesn't actually point specifically to what the expectation was currently in that day. But the most obvious um, opposition, opposite opinion of what the Messiah would look like is Isaiah 53. I'll start in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he has taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and, his, and with a rich man in him in his death, although he had not done no violence and there was no deceit in him in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So... The Messiah is expected to be despised and rejected, a lamb to the slaughter, to bear, bore, well, to bear the sins of many. And none of that sounds like David, at least not by the time he was actually made king. Isaiah 53 is the pretty much precise opposite of a powerful warring king that they would have been looking for at that time. Yet it's human nature to connect with the things that, or to focus on the things that connect with our greatest felt need. Israel at that time had been under the oppression of first the Greeks and then the Romans for over 300 years with a little rebellion thrown in the middle. Um, so their greatest felt need at that time was to, was to throw off their oppressors, to break the shackles of Rome. And so they were looking for a Davidic king that would do just that. And you might argue, like I said, that the crowds at the time wouldn't have known about Isaiah 53 or some of the other um, scriptures they weren't as popular and being what they're and being taught. So let's narrow our focus to the disciples. In Matthew 16, um, Peter basically gets like a pat on the back for um, declaring Jesus the Christ. But in the next paragraph, then Jesus starts to teach the disciples that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed, and then to rise on the third day. So that's straight from Jesus. Personal declaration. Um, that's not a vague prophecy. 
Yet here's Peter's response in Matthew 16, verse 22 to 23. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So suffering and being killed didn't match up with Peter's expectation of what the victorious Messiah should look like. And even at the, at the ascension, after the crucifixion um, and Jesus rose from the dead and onto the ascension, um, Luke actually records the disciples still asking, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And it had been after about a month of Jesus teaching about the spiritual kingdom. So that's what Jesus turns it back to, the spiritual kingdom. He says, it's not for you to know the time. You be my witnesses. A.K.A. here's what's important and you're missing it. Wrong expectations make us miss what God is doing because we focus on what things should look like. And when circumstances don't line up, it gets even harder to see what we should be looking for. In Luke 24, um, two disciples encounter Jesus on the road after the resurrection. I'll start in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that, were, that had happened. When they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet indeed, and word before God and all the people. Did you catch the switch? Only about a week and a half before, these two men probably would have been in the crowds that were declaring Jesus the Messiah. They were disciples of Christ close enough that they were, had access to the apostles, so I have no doubt that they would have been in that crowd. And at that time, they were declaring him Messiah, one who is coming to save. That's not the job of a prophet. So what happened in between? Jesus died on the cross. How could Jesus save Israel when he couldn't even save himself from crucifixion? That's what I believe they would have been thinking. The circumstances limited who they believed Jesus to be because they were still expecting a Davidic king. So let's continue. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Past tense. Their hope died with Jesus on the cross. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in, in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. That's basically exactly what Jesus had been teaching his disciples right before Peter got rebuked. He was going to die and be crucified and buried and be resurrected. 
and Peter and John went running to the tomb, but even though they were told that he would rise from the dead before all this happened, they were still dumbfounded when they didn't see him. And so the rest of the disciples and the two that they met on the road still couldn't see what God was actually doing. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus used the scriptures to confront their expectations. Verse 28. So they drew near the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the evening is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them sorry, with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So their hearts burned while he explained the scriptures. But it was when Jesus broke the bread that they knew him. Don't get me wrong. I wholly agree that the Bible is essential for discipleship and reading it is important to take time to do so. But you can often know a lot about God without actually knowing God himself. Today we often um, associate breaking of the bread with communion. And so I believe it's important to, oh, but in that context, for those two men, it it was a one-on-one moment of relationship over a meal um, that they saw him. And so I believe for us it's important for both, that we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which is remembrance through communion, and we spend time with him in a one-on-one personal relationship so that we will actually know him and we see him for who he really is. I've been a believer since I was a kid, but that's always really been a struggle for me, seeing him for who he really is. I tripped over a lot of my own expectations time and time again. For me, some of that um, came through personal prophecy. Um, I didn't grow up in a church where they really believed that God spoke today. And so when I encountered that, when I um, first realized that that was the case, I ran after it. Um, I took every class I could find on hearing God's voice, on the prophetic, um, practiced every chance I could get, and anybody who would pray for me, I would be like, yes, Um, get out my little voice recorder and like, come on, let's go, and just hoarded every word for, for myself. And I still love prophecy, and I'm very passionate about people learning to hear God's voice, but I recognize that I very much had the wrong heart. Um, and what I was hoping to get from it when I was younger. I treated it like a giant puzzle. If I can only get enough pieces and put them all together in the right way, then I can see what God wants for me, and then I can make it come to pass. Uh, But at a service in Hawaii, when I was living there, I felt like God said, you need to delete all your prophetic words, and I cried. But then I did begrudgingly comply. And I realized kind of through the process and what God was teaching me in that time that 
I had set three basic heart expectations based on different words that he had given me and that also the desires of my own heart. One, that I would get married. Two, that I would be published, which I'm a writer, if that helps clear that one up. And three, that I would know basically God's love for me in my heart. So I was unconsciously using those three expectations as a benchmark to determine God's goodness and faithfulness to me. The Bible says that he is good and he is faithful, but that wasn't how I was judging that truth. I was also using it to judge my own success in life and being a little bit discouraged. Um, all three things are good, and I still think they're all three things that God wants for me, but I had made them idols in my heart. So when I moved to Hawaii, I packed them in my bag and I brought them along. And based on those measures, that trip was an absolute failure. Didn't meet anybody. Writing got put on the back burner. And even in a location that was absolutely steeped in his presence, I didn't encounter God's heart for me in the way that I wanted. But while I was there, he showed me, well, basically convicted me, that I was pursuing his promises more than I was pursuing him. Um, and that is a big difference. Um, I wasn't trusting in his nature and his character as is revealed in the word. But as he was confronting those things in my life, I started to see um, glimpses of what he actually was doing. So he was like, he was breaking lies off of my heart and restoring my identity. Um, he was giving me opportunities to step into things like mentoring, which he created me for, but I was starting to lose faith in that because I had lacked the opportunity before. But I had a friend that I met there who wasn't quite so lucky. Um, he had a, such a strong picture of what he felt like encountering God in that trip should look like that when he didn't actually see it, he literally gave up on God entirely. I even tried to point out to him where I saw God moving through the people around him and the relationships that he had made in that place. But for him, God failed. End of story, end of pursuit. He was done. So for me, hindsight is great. Like, looking back, I realized that if God had actually met any of those, my expectations in that time, I would have stopped pursuing him in the same way. And because of that, I would have actually missed out or at least seriously delayed a calling that I had that I hadn't been aware of at the time. I really believe he's called me to help heal hearts of people who are trapped in childhood trauma. And that wasn't even on the radar at the time. Um, so would it have actually been God's goodness or his faithfulness at that point to answer any of my prayers, or at least the big three? At the time, we would have said yes. Now, looking back, not so much. God had to tear down my own priorities and my own expectations to see what he was actually doing in my life. So I basically went from looking at my circumstances to determine whether or not God was good or faithful to looking at my circumstances through the lens of God's goodness and faithfulness. I'm going to say that one again. I went from looking at my circumstances to determine whether God was good or faithful to looking at my circumstances through the lens of God's goodness and faithfulness. And that's a very different heart posture. Between that and some heart healing that has happened in the, in the meantime, I'm in a much more um, solid place than I've ever been in before. That change in perspective was kind of like the difference between where the Bible talks about um, building your house on the shifting sand versus on the rock that is Jesus. I went from like constantly looking around to see if I'm okay to like, I know I'm okay because this is where God has me and I trust in, in it. Um, so my circumstances, the big three, really honestly haven't changed. 
um, but I'm still trusting that either God will bring them about or um, if he doesn't, that it's for his, for my best, basically. And so believing, like, just choosing to believe what the Bible says about who God is to some might just sound like brainwashing, but I personally would rather be found foolish in the end of days than to um, hold back on pursuing him and miss out on the plans that he has for me because he says they are greater than anything I can think or imagine. So I have no idea how long that took, but um, <laughs> anyway, that's okay. Um, I'm going to invite you in this next or the last song um, to actually ask God for yourself um, if you have any wrong heart expectations or if there's anywhere that you are not seeing him rightly. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to pray for you. Um, Daddy God, I thank you that you are good and that you are faithful. And then we, when we look to see those characteristics in our lives and in our, in our circumstances, um, you make it readily um, apparent. Um, and so I pray right now, Lord, that if there's anybody like me whose heart has not kind of been in the right place in this area, that you would just put your finger on it, not in a condemning, harsh way, but that you would just show them where they um, have been looking to you um, for things that are not your best for them or seeing you for just ways that you are not really, um, that are not actually your nature and your character. And so I pray um, just that, yeah, that you would have your way in the lives of each and every one of us this week. And I just thank you for this time and for these people. Um, and I bless them in Jesus' name. Um, if you have any interest in prayer after this service, please um, just come and get me. I would love to pray for you. If you'd like to receive prayer, Kate, I think it'll be good if you go on that side of the, the room where the Olashinas were sitting. 